Welcome everyone. A show about, for, and with everything that's Indio, California. And now, without further ado, your host for In Indio, Rick Wise. That's uh, Gary Bushkin, um, our announcer. One day we'll have uh, Gary and his wife Estita on. They're from New Jersey, quite a couple. They live on Campana. It's time to find out what's really going on. Remember, the Chili Cook-Off's coming this Thursday, January 30th. If you haven't already signed up, call 760-863-2399 or email thelodge at managementtrust.com. Let them know what you plan on bringing. That's Thursday, January 30th. One of the biggest things uh, to happen here in the Coachella Valley is the Date Festival. Riverside County Fair and Date Festival. It begins February 14th and runs through the 23rd. There's a lot of special promotions out there. Friday, February 14th, the opening day. For the first five hours, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., it's absolutely free. You want to check that out on Friday. Also on Tuesday, February 18th is NBC Palm Springs Day. Watch NBC Palm Springs News and get the phrase that pays. And when you say it, it only costs you $6 to get into the festival. Now here's the biggest thing. We have a lot of veterans here in the neighborhood and every single day festival, veterans with their ID card are admitted free. Not just the veteran, you can bring three family members or friends with you too. So four people in free with your veteran's ID. Go to datefest.org, get more specific uh, details on these promotions and buy your tickets. The Old Time Radio Show is still looking for volunteers. Contact Cindy Otis or Shirley Schumann to be part of this great production. Okay, we have a big show today, so let's get started. And now it's time to meet one of your neighbors. Hey, neighbor. Won't you be my neighbor? When I started this uh, podcast, I was told everybody that uh, I was going to interview the interesting neighbors in the area. And more than one person says, have you talked to Arnie yet? And so I'm very privileged to have Arnie, uh, Bernie, with me uh, here on uh, in Indio. So, Arnie, how are you doing today? Well, I had an 18-hole golf game this morning, so my old body is getting worn out, I guess. Okay. But I had fun. Well, you look good. You look good. So, you're not from California. Correct. Do you want to give us a little uh, background and about your life? Well, I'll try. I don't know how interesting that is, but we'll go for it. I was actually born in New York, didn't live there very long was thinking about this. I went to about nine schools before I got out of high school. Wow, that's I, something. Yeah, I lived in uh, suburbs of New York City, uh, Yonkers and Ardsley. And then when I was five, we moved to Arizona uh, because one of my brothers had a bad case of asthma and they thought that would cure it uh, or help him. So we were only there for a few years and uh, because of a family issue my father had, we ended up moving back to Long Island, 
as they say back there, Long Island, and uh, <laughs> yeah. lived there for a number of years. And uh, by the time I ended up in high school, we were living in Weston, Connecticut. And uh, that was an interesting place to be. I would say that uh, it was a very wealthy community and we weren't. And so it was very upsetting to me when I was a high schooler who didn't understand these things, why I couldn't have a car when all the other guys did. But it was a very interesting place to live. As you might know, people like Paul Newman lived there. Uh, we lived down the street from Harry Reasoner, the newscaster. Oh, it was upscale neighborhood. And Douglas Edwards, another newscaster. And uh, one of my friends uh, was the son of the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine. So it was sometimes maybe you learn lessons that you shouldn't have learned. <laughs> so uh, then you went off to uh, college, I see, to Indiana? Yeah, I ended up going to DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. It was a conservative Methodist school, and I wasn't. Okay, but either right, <laughs> but it was good to learn the other side. Right, um, and the reason I went there is I wanted to get away from my parents for a while. Uh, unbeknownst to me, one year later, my father changed jobs and they moved to Indianapolis, which was an hour away. <laughs> oh my God! So they followed you. Yes. They followed me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I, as I understand it, you met your beautiful wife, Linda. I met her at Tipaw, and uh, she was a piano performance major. She. Unfortunately, didn't finish school there because I was two years ahead of her, knowing that I was probably going to end up going off to the military. Uh, we got married when we left Depaw. And at Depaw, I, you know, I wasn't the best student in the world until I met her. Uh, I was much more interested in athletics, and I was the varsity track and field captain. And uh, I discovered that I was an okay athlete, but not a great one, that's for sure. <laughs> I did end up winning the Indiana State Javelin Championship in 1965. Wow. And unfortunately, another guy who was taller, more coordinated than I, threw it a lot further than I did, ended up going to the Olympic trials. And I wasn't quite that far. And the funny thing is, is now the ladies throw the javelin probably as far as I did right. in those days. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, side note on Linda, I know she's a great piano player, and I do... Um, hope to get her on this show someday and have her play the piano for everybody. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> then, then you went in the military, is that correct? After I left uh, the university, um, it was the Vietnam War, right in the middle of uh, throes of the war, and it was very difficult to get employment because everyone was sure you were going to get drafted. I couldn't get a job right away. Uh, finally, I did get a job teaching school for a year, and I taught junior high school. You were a teacher. In Park Forest, Illinois. I would have never yep. even imagined that. Yeah, well, I couldn't imagine it either. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually, I got to tell you, it was one of the most difficult jobs I ever had. Wow. Yeah, it but, can be. And I see it was junior high school. Junior high school. And I had kids from what they say, both sides of the tracks. And <laughs> a number of them weren't interested in learning. And they were much more interested in doing things like passing around sex tests than they were right. learning. <laughs> so it was a quite of an interesting experience. And getting kids to behave was probably the greatest challenge. And some of the things that I did in those days, probably I'd be in trouble for today. For example, <laughs> when the kids wouldn't listen and they continued to disrupt class, I would make the perpetrators sit in a circular wastebasket and uh, embarrass him. Yeah. And usually I got good results from it, but I right. don't think it would be approved right yeah. now. So. Yeah. It's probably a good thing you left teaching. Yeah, I think it was a good thing right. I left teaching. <laughs> 
and after that, I had a very short stint with International Harvester and in their credit and collections department. And after getting uh, facing people uh, pointing a gun at me for trying to repossess their car a few times, I decided it was time to go into the military. So I went ahead and enlisted in the Air Force and went through the officer training program. I became an OSI, Office of Special Investigations agent, and uh, was sent off to Texas. You know, we did the typical things you would think of, criminal investigations, counterintelligence, background. And because President Johnson would come into Texas on his way to his ranch, uh, I was on what they call distinguished visitor protection for him. And so we worked alongside the Secret Service, kind of as their minions, to provide support. So and, you actually met President Johnson? Oh, I met him a number of times. I met his daughters, and I met Lady Bird. Interesting. I'll tell you one funny story. I, I can't tell too many of them because I don't think that Secret Service guys would appreciate it. But <laughs> there was one very funny one when uh, we were sitting in the control room and his pilot called in and said, the man will be in in 20 minutes. In those days, we called him the man, not POTUS. <laughs> and uh, he wanted uh, Mrs. Arthur Krim, the wife of Broadway playwright Arthur Krim, to come to his ranch for a mental health council meeting. And no one knew where she was, except she was in San Antonio somewhere. So Secret Service guys said, tried to use their contacts. Of course, their contacts were not kind of the people that you would, not the kind of people that you would expect would know about that. So I called a friend of mine at the newspaper, and he immediately found her speaking at the Sheraton Hotel. So I went up to the Secret Service detail and said, I know where she is. And I won't tell you what they said, other than they just said, okay, here's a car and a five motorcycle escort. Go get her. So I went downtown, found her at the Sheraton, and I, she was speaking to a group of elderly people about, and I'd look at me, elderly people, I'm one now, uh, mental health. And uh, I walked up to the stage and I opened my right uh, jacket and showed her my credentials. And she still kept talking. I opened the other side and showed her the pistol, and that got her attention. So we madly ran up to her room, and I started helping her pack, throwing things into a suitcase, and apologizing profusely. And she says, oh, don't apologize, young man. On the contrary, most fun I've had in years. Carry on. <laughs> so we finally got in the car and roared toward the airport. And as we got to the airport, off went President Johnson in his Jetstar. He had changed from Air Force One to the Jetstar and took off. And I didn't know that he had a rule. And I was in contact with the Secret Service the whole time. And I had no idea he had a rule. After 20 minutes, goodbye, he goes. He'd only wait for 20 minutes. Right. And as I got up to the fence and the guys let me in, the Secret Service guy said, well, Bernie, you are almost a hero. And don't worry, we'll remember the almost. Oh, yeah. So at, at that point, I finally decided maybe a change is in order. And uh, I had wanted to go back to school and get my master's degree and so out of the blue, finally, I got a call from the Air Force Academy, and they said, how'd you like to go back to school and get a master's degree in Japanese and Far Eastern studies? And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, why me? And they started giving me a story about, no, you know, my, I'd shown good aptitude for language and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, me and 53,000 other guys. And they laughed. And the head of the department there said, well, the truth of the matter is people wanting to do this aren't jumping out of trees. <laughs> so I said... It's late. It's July. We can't get you into the normal places. You get yourself into a good school. So I knew a person who taught Korean in Indiana, which taught 109 languages at the time. And uh, he helped me uh, get introduced uh, to 
the school and I got admitted to the university. Unfortunately, I got my orders and moved to uh, Bloomington, Indiana. And when I went to the Japanese and Far Eastern Studies Department, they said, well, of course, you've had three years of Japanese, haven't you? I said, no, I can't even say hello. And they said, well, then you can't get in the department. And I began to get very sweaty hands. And there was one uh, Caucasian fellow in the department, and he had been in the military. And I said, you know what will happen to me if I'm not accepted? So he said, well, why don't we give him a chance? The worst thing that could happen is that they, we throw him out. And I said, I'll do all three years in the next six months minimum. And uh, I had to do Japanese and Russian, and I did it three months, not six months. So I ended up having to do basically five years worth of study in 19 months. So we ended up uh, not watching movies or doing much of anything. I right. Just study. <laughs> and uh, I rented a little house with a very large piece of property from a landlord who was a Baptist minister. And he traded me cutting the grass on his powered lawnmower, riding lawnmower, for lower rent. And uh, I could sit there and know how long it took me to go up and down the rows while I studied the flashcards right. and mashed the words into my head. So finally, that's gradu- how you learned. That's how I learned. So I finally on a, on a lawnmower. On a lawnmower. <laughs> so finally graduated, got my master's degree, and then we went off to Colorado Springs to the Air Force Academy, where I taught for two years. And uh, I enjoyed it to a point, but it was the kind of environment where you really didn't come up with original ideas and get them approved. The old joke was, if you have an original idea in the military, squelch it, because if you don't, someone else might. But uh, finally, Linda read to me an article in the base newspaper that said the war was winding down. They didn't need so many officers. So I requested to leave, uh, wanted to go into my family business. Uh, First, they told me no, because you're only one of two people who has the capability in the Air Force. But after I appealed to them on family reasons, uh, they let me go. At that point, then we moved back to Indianapolis. I bought a house, and we had two cars, and my father discovered he was going bankrupt in this waterproofing business that he was in. Oh. So within two months... I sold the house and the cars, and I had a choice of going two places, to the FBI, and then I had an offer from TRW, a very large multinational firm. Which you had is, already had experience with the government. Yeah, well, I'd had some experience with the yeah. government, and I had no desire to go to the FBI because I knew how their practices worked and how closely they watched you do everything, and the fact that you pretty much in those days was under J. Edgar Hoover, you had to get permission to go to the john where the right so uh i decided to go with trw and uh, i spent about six months learning their businesses because it was a very large conglomerate probably about 20 billion dollars now maybe more and uh after that they packed us off to japan and uh that was a very nice trip first time you knew japanese i knew a little japanese obviously from what i had done from your uh, lawnmower days from my lawnmower days and from teaching at the air force academy And actually, I went when I was in the Air Force. The Air Force sent me to Japan for about three months and exchange officer with the Japanese Defense Academy. And many funny stories from that. (laughs) I'll tell you one or two. I arrived in Japan at Yokosuka Air Force Base, and they had this lovely guest house they put me up in the first night. And then I was to take a bath, Japanese bath. 
Well, I knew that Japanese baths were a little different from typical American bath. One thing, you don't just jump in the bath, you wash outside the bath, especially hairy Americans. A lot of other people use the same water. But what I didn't know was how hot it was. And I put my leg in and the hair on my leg disappeared as if you were cooking a chicken over a flame. I jumped out of the water, it was so hot, and all of a sudden five little ladies came running up toward me and I kept saying, no, no, no problem, no problem in Japanese. You say, mondai nai, mondai nai. And they wouldn't stop. I had nowhere to go. I couldn't get back in the water. I had a washcloth about three by three. <laughs> and I scrunched back against the wall and they kept coming. Finally, they came up and started stroking my arm and saying, mink, go mink, go mink. They'd never seen a man with hair on his body. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and, and so that, that was among many of the funny stories we ended up with in Japan. So anyway, back to after going to Japan for TRW, the very first day we arrived, my wife had never been out of the country, and uh, we had two kids with us, and there were boxes all over the house, and my boss showed up, executive vice president of the company, and he said to Linda, Linda, you're going to hate me for this, but I need Arnold to go to Korea with me today, and uh, because we have a large ball and roller bearing plant that we're trying to build. So... I went off, left Linda on her own the first day. She went shopping. She didn't speak Japanese or read Japanese at the time. So she went to the store and bought hamburger buns and meat, among other things. She cut the hamburger bun buns open, and there was bean paste in the middle, red bean paste. Oh, my God. <laughs> she cooked the meat. It smelled to heaven, and when she tried to eat it, it was so tough she couldn't chew it, and it turned out to be whale meat. So that was our introduction to Japan. Yeah. And uh, so I spent about, uh, I think we spent about a little over two years there, and we loved it. And she was very reluctant to leave when, when we did. We had many funny experiences there, too. Customs were very, very different, and you had to get used to things like people in the hotel and the Japanese running around in their underwear, <laughs> and the men at the construction sites taking everything off and changing right there in full view. And there were many toilets to use, but... Uh, Many of the men chose to just use the street. And one of the funnier things that happened was public restrooms were not really divided. And when the men would be at their urinals, the women go, would go back to the stalls. They have to pass right by them. And our neighbor was the head of RCA Laboratories in Japan. And his wife was a very tall lady, maybe six feet tall, which was very unusual for a woman in Japan, redheaded. And as she walked in, little man doing his business, turned to her without letting go of his business and said, I rub you. And she said, I rub you. I rub you. And she said, you damn well better not. <laughs> <laughs> and basically what he meant was, I love you. I love you. Because they couldn't I say the you. L. <laughs> so we had a number of funny things like that happen when we were in Japan. Another one was I went to a meeting with a Japanese company. Two guys I was talking to were trying to pull a fast one on me and they didn't know I spoke Japanese. And I didn't say a word while they were doing that. And when we were through, I thanked them very profusely in Japanese and spoke to them. And you should have seen the looks on their faces. <laughs> that was the high point of the day. <laughs> and uh, so those were just a couple of the interesting things that happened. Then I see somehow you ended up in China? No, well, that was, <laughs> that was quite a bit after. Um, <laughs> we, we left and I ended up actually going to, to Jamestown, New York for two years for a marketing and production job. And uh, that taught me that I really want to be in California because we had 39 days of sun 
and uh, it was snow from, uh, it could be October to April. They approached, TRW approached me again and said, look, this is not a good place. We need you to go overseas. We want you to go to Switzerland, to the international headquarters. So I went to Switzerland and became the business planning and development manager. And shortly after took on sales and uh, sourcing as well, because the guy in front of me uh, had an unfortunate uh, problem and committed suicide. And the biggest problem the company had was they were trying to do things the American way and sell things that they would buy from other people and put in a box and sell to the European customers. Well, in Europe, they don't do that. If they need a piston, they buy it from the German company that makes pistons. And uh, I just said, you know, the concept is wrong. And I was told, don't question the concept, only the execution. And my response to that was the only execution happening uh, is the execution of some of your good people. Yeah. And I don't want to be one of them, so I'm going to leave. And they told me, well, you got to stay on for another 15 months, please. And I said, no, because I don't want to have my kids have to leave in the middle of a school year. So we left, and I again decided to go back to a family business, which is another mistake, number two with the family, and went into the oil field business in the overthrust belt in Utah. Oil dropped. Three months later, we were doing well, but oil dropped from like $32 a barrel down to something like seven. And our wells got shut off, and we were a small company, couldn't support it. So I lost everything, and at age 40, had to start all over again. Oh. So quickly answered a bunch of ads, one in the Wall Street Journal that took me to Tulsa, Oklahoma, small company in the winch business. <laughs> and Linda was from Tulsa, and her parents lived there. So that was nice, and we were there for pretty close to 10 years. And I was doing okay with it until the, the people were rather provincial, and the owner was very uncaring about people who work for him, other than me, and uh, I was vice president of marketing and sales. And we could have any car we wanted, but he would not let the people share in the profits. And when there was a recession, he put everybody on four days a week, but not us. And I said that was wrong. Then he went out with the company money and bought a boat. At that point, I said, you know what? I've got to live up to my principles a little better than I am. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I got contacted by Citibank Venture Capital Division. And they said, how would you like to have a chance to do a leverage buyout with two other guys of a company. And I said, sounds good. Where is it? And they said, Mississippi. And I said, no way. And they <laughs> said, come on, we'll buy you dinner in New York, and then you can decide. So I went, met the other two, liked them, and we moved to Tupelo, Mississippi for three years. And we count that as one of our blank spaces in our life because cultural level in Tupelo, Mississippi was not what we expected. No university. And it was difficult for Linda being a classical pianist. Right. And uh, the company, funny thing there, the company's name was Super Sagless. And when I heard that, it made me think immediately of, is this a Brazier company? <laughs> yeah. And it turned out to be a recliner and seating uh, component manufacturing company. Oh. And... Uh, the short of it was that within 18 months, we'd done such a good job and we were killing our major competitor and they came in and bid $25 million more than we were going to pay. And we had no money. We were going to leverage it all. And so, of course, the bank accepted that and said, you know, if you guys complain, maybe in 30 years you'll get something, but probably not. We have more lawyers than you do. And they said, go somewhere else or stay here. And, and so I stayed there running that business for a while with another fellow, but corporate called me and said, no, we need you here at the corporate office. So I moved to Carthage, Missouri, 
where or Joplin, Missouri. I lived there, and the company was in Carthage. Mm-hmm. It's about a five billion dollar a year company, and they're leader in they're the inventor and main manufacturer of the bed spring. Uh, they make mattresses, they make uh, recliner mechanisms, make automotive seating, uh, carpet underlay, aircraft tubing, many, many things. And uh, so I was the vice president of marketing sales international, and that was good for quite a while. I got to travel all over the world. And that put me on a whirlwind uh, of airplane travel for the rest of my life, actually, until I retired. So you retired from that company? I then. retired. I, I, I was there and uh, about 1994 made my first trip to China. And uh, China was becoming the place where it was at. 1998, I approached the CEO and said, we need to be there. And he said, no way. But Wall Street got very interested in China and put pressure on him. So I said, I want to build a factory. And he said, I'll give you a million and a half dollars. I said, I can buy one stamping press with that. I don't want it. Mm-hmm. So he finally came back after more pressure from Wall Street and said, okay, go do what you need to do. So I went over to a big furniture show and found a little Chinese company with an American partner knocking us off. And uh, I walked up to them and I said, guys, I'm either going to buy you or put you out of business. Which is it? And they sold the company to us. And we grew it from, they were doing probably not more than about a million and a half dollars a year. And within two years, we'd grown it to $100 million. Wow. Great investment. It it was a very good investment. And over the course of time, we bought a number more that I I arranged and uh, ended up with about 13 factories. in China, India, and Korea. And uh, China was an extremely interesting place with uh, a lot of governmental interference and uh, a lot of different cultural uh, customs. Uh, some One of the funnier things was uh, I had a lot to do with the provincial government. I was the sole token uh, foreigner on the Economic Development Board. And one day they had a government dinner and I was the guest of honor. And I was sitting there and this white lump appeared on my plate and I couldn't say what it was, but I was supposed to eat it. So I took a bite of it and everybody burst out laughing. Turned out to be fish's stomach. And the Communist Party head said to me, Arnold, we understand that if you don't like to drink, it's okay. If your wife doesn't want you to drink, if you get sick or if it's against your religious views, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But if you don't drink with me, you are not ever going to be my good friend. So I learned to drink by Joe. And uh, the government uh, had also, you know, of course, you've heard uh, our government complain about uh, Chinese uh, stealing intellectual property, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, we saw a lot of that. And uh, it was an interesting experience being there. And uh, of course, I had my share of difficulties with our own company because being Americans, they didn't understand the Chinese customs. Right. One of the things that was difficult was the Chinese have VAT. Uh, tax, mm-hmm. value-added tax. And the big companies, they had input and output. And until they got both of them collected, they wouldn't give you an invoice. And our company, insist, the board, insisted on getting the invoice right away. And if, to do that, you'd have to buy little teeny quantities. And our competitor was buying six months' worth. So I had a big fight to finally get to where to convince them that maybe we should change that. Right. <laughs> and I didn't always win. So it was a very interesting experience traveling all over the world. I learned to live on four hours of sleep, 16, 18 hour days. I had about 5,000 people working uh, in my area for me. And uh, jet lag was very common experience. 
So I don't miss any of those things. Once in a while, I miss the challenge. So you understand why people in the neighborhood think you might have been a spy. <laughs> yeah, a spook, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but not so. Okay. So, but you don't live here full year time, round, yeah. right? Not yet. Okay. Right You're... now, we still live in Joplin, Missouri for the rest of the year, and we're trying to sell our home. It's taking a long time, small town, big house, old. Uh, when we sell that, eventually, uh, we will probably end up here full time. And you like it here, right? We love it here. Oh, great. It's a wonderful community. It's very diverse, and the people are super welcoming. So, And you and your wife, Linda, you live on what street is that? Bazano Place. Okay. I was one of the earlier people who moved in. I live on lot number one. So Lot number one of the first group of houses, first probably, right? First group of houses, yes. Well, great. Well, Arnie, it was great having you here. You are one of the most interesting people we have living here in uh, Four Seasons at Terralago. Well, Thank nice you so much for coming. Well, it's entirely my pleasure. Well, that was an interesting show. So we're going to end the show right here, but if you have any questions about anything you heard today, contact us at rick at inindio.com. Catch us on our Facebook page, iTunes, or the internet at inindio.com. And Q tells me we now are on YouTube. Go to YouTube and just search for In Indio. Until next time, see you in Indio. This has been a Wise Words production. Yu Jung, producer. And I'm Gary Bushkin, your announcer. Wise out.